0: Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Good evening and welcome. Tonight we are joined by Meg Eden-Kewitt, author and creative writing teacher to discuss her experiences as an autistic educator. So join us as we explore memories of learning with autism, adapting teaching for autistic students, and ways of supporting neurodiverse teachers.
0: Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. I hope you all had a pleasant Christmas holiday and have now dispelled any nagging first week back worries that you might have forgotten how to teach while having been away from the classroom. I've been back for just under three weeks, having returned for inset on the 8th of January, shortly after the huge Christmas tree in the main hall had been taken down and the decorations packed away for another year. I have always wondered how English schools can call their late December closure the Christmas holiday if staff are back at work before Epiphany, as, for the students I teach who hail from Europe and the Americas, Epiphany Day is a major celebration. In France, the day is marked with consumption of a king cake, either a sweet-filled pastry Or a crown shaped cake or brioche depending on the local custom. In Austria, Germany and German speaking Switzerland, the 6th of January is a public holiday and children dressed as wise men travel from house to house performing songs to raise donations for charitable causes. In Spain and much of Spanish speaking Latin America, hopeful youngsters polish their shoes and leave them to be filled with gifts from any passing Magi. So in our school at least, no one is in too much of a hurry to be back at their desks in the first week of January. And with the day being the celebration of Candlemas, the Epiphany season has now finished and, as if to remind us of the extraordinariness of the Christmas season, we move once more into ordinary time. The wintry weather of the last month has further added to the fested feel at the opening of 2024. The snowfall was particularly heavy in the second week back and on a couple of days digging the car out and clearing it of snow in temperatures of minus 5 Celsius has meant leaving a good 30 minutes earlier than usual to deal with the lightly gritted A-roads and the completely unsalted country lanes of Rydale. Still, it makes a change after the rain, and the storms, and the rain, and the storms, and the rain that finally saw off 2023. For our Year 11 students, returning to school in January means getting themselves ready for a full set of mock exams. For most of our English students, this means completing a composite poetry and drama paper for IGCSE English Literature followed by an IGCSE English language paper. A handful of others will be completing both language papers. By the end of the mock week, there will be a lot of marking to share out between the four of us. In the department, in the SIC form, our Year 13 students are putting the finishing touches to their English Literature NEA coursework task on the poets and novelists that they have been researching since last April on writers as diverse as Oscar Wilde, David Malouf, Daniel Defoe, Sam Selvan and Daphne du Maurier and poets as eclectic as Edgar Allan Poe, Ted Hughes, Anne Sexton and John Clare. It is particularly satisfying to see upper sixth students beginning to write like early undergraduates at this point in the year whether they are taking on English at university or planning an alternative pathway beyond the public examinations. The questions cease to be, how strict are the exam board about the maximum word count and become instead, this critical essay I found on JSTOR looks like it would be worth critiquing in my final draft. How should I reference it? Or I read another book by author X over the holiday and it's completely different from how I thought she wrote. Can I mention it in my essay?" They are beginning to reach that point when they are finding out new things about the topics, texts and theories they thought they already knew. By the middle of next week, this process will be over. The final drafts will be proofread, printed and stapled. The submission forms will have been read, signed and dated. And another coursework cycle will have been wrapped up before February begins. That each of these independent essays counts for less than one 50 to 60 minute exam essay since coursework dropped to 20 percent of the final grade seems a shame in the grand scheme of things but this is the system within which we work and everyone's attention will subsequently shift to ensuring that the three tragedy and three crime set texts are carefully prepared for our second set of mocks in February and the final exams in June. The Teachers Talk Radio team have been out and about on their tour of the BET education show in London, and you can catch up with some of their impromptu interviews with Education's Great and Good on Twitter, and I don't doubt, on some upcoming podcasts. The technical wizards I've also been busy putting together a series of collections on a variety of education topics that you can access via the website at www.ttradio.org. This collection offers valuable interviews and discussions on everything from SEND provision to teacher wellbeing, promoting reading and everything in between. Some of these topics we are also likely to be touching on in this show. As I'm pleased to say, we are joined by author and creative writing teacher, Meg Eden Kuat, to explore some of the issues that arise when working as a neurodiverse practitioner, as she looks back to her experience as a classroom learner, considers how an autism diagnosis affected her teaching practice. And reflects upon how autistic students and educators might be better supported in the future. Meg is a poet, novelist and educator who has taught creative writing at summer camps, colleges and writing centres including Southern New Hampshire University Online, University of Maryland College Park, MTSU Write, Eckelberg Workshops and the Writers' Centre in Bethsaida. She is the author of the 2021 Towson Prize for Literature winning poetry collection, Drowning in the Floating World, press 53, 2020, and children's novels, most recently, Good Different, a JLG Gold Standard Selection, Scholastic 2023. She is currently an adjunct instructor in creative writing at Anne Arundel Community College in Maryland, USA. And I'm delighted to say that Meg joins us on the line now. Good evening to you, Meg, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio today. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: I hope I've given people a good sense of your career so far, but is there anything you think I've missed you'd like to add by way of introduction?
2: Um, no, it was wonderful. I would just add um, Good Different just won the Schneider Hon- uh, Family Honor Award um, last week, so that's a new, exciting development
1: okay fantastic many congratulations on that thank you perhaps we can begin then meg by exploring your experience of education in the classroom and at university what prompted you to become a teacher and what route did you take into the profession
2: so it's funny that was never something that i was in my initial academic career pursuing I was a student in a living and learning program at the University of Maryland called the Jimenez Porter Writers House, which is this wonderful concept of living in a dorm with people that have similar interests to you. So, that one was specifically for writers. um, And so, you didn't have to be an English major, but everyone was doing this kind of certificate program for writing and living in the same dorm. And I was in that program, and the person running it at the time um, asked me if I would have interest teaching one of the courses on publication and things like that um and so that was something i never really thought of when she invited me to do that i ended up really loving it um and later on i had another um former professor reach out to ask if i'd be interested in teaching at anne arundel community college in writing and so both those times it was like okay somebody's you know expressing this interest in this thing and um that sparked me to do it and i ended up just falling in love with it
1: And how about in your earlier days? Did you ever see yourself being a teacher when you were at school in the classroom yourself?
2: No, I don't think so. Um, Not that I would be against the idea. I think I was, um, I felt for a very long time, very shy and uncomfortable uh, presenting in front of people and things like that. So the idea of being a teacher, I think, just sounded so terrifying, getting up in front of people hoping that they might pay attention to you, um, having something interesting to say. I think it just, it was kind of a greatest fear in a lot of ways until I started doing it. And it was really nerve wracking at first. And then like anything, it's a muscle you exercise and you get used to it.
1: So there was none of this kind of standing up in the house then with a, a whiteboard <laughs> and uh, putting up the sums that were going to be learned today or the the verb conjugations that were going to be learned today and testing the parents out. <laughs>
2: Um, you know as you you say that, um I don't think I quite did that, but um yeah i I was an only child, and so I did definitely do things with my parents that were not too dissimilar to that, but I don't think teaching was ever really on my radar. I wanted to be an artist, that was what I really wanted to do um and create, um which I think are tangential, um, and I think that's what led me to writing um and then when you love something. And the idea of teaching becomes a delight too, because um, I have my most formative memories with instructors are people that just, they came up in front of the room, they said, I love this thing. Like I had this biology teacher in community college who just was so excited by things like symbiosis and just would come in with this excitement and passion. And that's sharing that with people, it's contagious and infectious. So I think, um, and, and not quite put those things together, but it makes sense now in time that, You know, I've always been a person that's passionate about things and then sharing that passion um, becomes quite an organic thing when you frame it that way.
1: So tell us a little bit more then about this route that you took through your degree programme and into postgraduate study. um, As you're developing as a learner and as you're developing as a teacher, that would be useful for our audience to know, I think.
2: Um, So. So for context, my grammar school years, um, I was in a classical Christian school. Um, Then high school, I went to a public school. And then um, once I graduated from um, high school, I went to University of Maryland, as you said. Um, And there I had the conundrum, I think a lot of students do, which is what on earth, how do I consolidate everything I'm excited about into one, single field of study. Uh, The idea was quite overwhelming and daunting um, because I had such diverse interests. So I spent a lot of time really thinking, well, what unites these things? And I discovered that the University of Maryland had this individual studies program where you could create your own major. Fun fact, Jim Henson created a puppetry major um, when he was there. Uh, So he's kind of our claim to fame for that program. I mean, that idea really interested me, this idea of figuring out how to explain my interests and put them all into one thing so it was quite a soul searching process um, and it was one of the most valuable things i think i've ever had in terms of my education because i had to create my program i had to decide what classes were most critical for um, becoming a master in the subject that mattered to me and then i had to make an argument to a board of why this degree should exist and you know why um the program i created was compelling and the first time I did that, I failed. Um, so I had this huge learning, really hands-on practical learning experience of that I have constantly in my profession. and I think most of us in any profession have of, I have to um, make an argument for why this thing I care about matters and why I should do it and how it should be done. And so I really had to do that for this program and I eventually succeeded. Um, and I think failure is so critical too. Failing that first time, I couldn't just, do the easy answer or the first answer that came to mind, which is often why I encourage my students with as well, you know, the first solution you have to writing a story or writing a paper is often uh, the easy one or the cliche one. So you have to dig deeper. And failure teaches us to keep digging deeper. And so I had to really develop this program. And so I graduated with an undergraduate bachelor's in science um, in cognitive science and written communication, which was this interdisciplinary humanities meets sciences um, program of trying to understand how the brain works and um, manifesting that knowledge that i had learned through writing a novel um, and so once i did that i worked um, shortly in a research uh, facility again teaching was not quite on my mind yet um, but then i had this teacher ask me if i'd like to teach at Anadolu community college and to do so i needed a master's an mfa uh, specifically, I needed a terminal degree, so I was motivated to go back to the University of Maryland for my master's in fine arts in creative writing. And in that program, I, you know, learned writing craft and literature, but I also um, took courses on teaching and was um, actively teaching at Writer's House and some other programs.
1: What was it like being a teacher and a student at the same time in that master's phase for
2: you? It was, um, it was very interesting. I've realized it's actually uh, been quite formative for my perspective as a teacher, and something that I've had to kind of reevaluate. So it was very bizarre, because when I was first teaching, I was the same age as my students. So that gave me an approach to teaching that I want to be very conversational. I wanted to be very colloquial, perhaps a resistance to that classical model I had before as well. I was like, I really just want to be hanging out with you, teaching you what I know. And there's times I think that I still really value that idea. Um, Again, that idea of passion. I think when we're coming in and having a conversation, it also levels the playing field in the classroom where it's not the hierarchy of I am the person in authority and you are the ones who will listen to me. And there's obviously times for that authority dynamic but I think that there's something very empowering for students when they're given some autonomy in that classroom of, um, we're all, I often tell my students, you know, I'm a writer too. I'm struggling with these same things of how to successfully write an essay or write a story as you. So in that sense, we're all trying to untangle this problem together. And I think that that gives some power and autonomy to the students in the classroom and some invitation for them to be participants in the classroom as well. So I think that that was kind of cool starting with my peers in teaching but then there was a sort of wake-up call where at some point it became clear that i was no longer the same age as my students and i said something like oh uh this writer's coming into the uh for writers here and now this month and he's about our age and they all went our age and i went oh oh no i'm i'm old now so um that's it, made me kind of continually re-examine my approach because there are times where it's Of course, especially with younger kids, there's moments where discipline is necessary, Um, sometimes with older students as well. Um, Sometimes my adult learners are my most rowdy students. Um, But I still really love, especially in something like a writing classroom, I really, my, one of my hugest goals as an instructor is to really show students that writing is possible for them. Writing is something that they can be a participant in. So trying to create this inviting conversational environment is something I'm often trying to achieve as an instructor to pull them in and engage them and give them a space where their voice counts.
1: It's interesting you talk about this concept of a kind of almost flat hierarchy in the classroom. It's a theme that we've heard repeatedly actually on this show from various creative writing practitioners. We've heard about it being an effective model in the English prison system. We've heard about it being an effective model in uh, other American community college contexts. There is something slightly complicated about that position there, isn't there, Meg?
2: Yes. Um, Well, there's a lot I could say about that. And there's a lot that's, um, what you're saying is making me think about the conversations having right now about the pedagogy of the workshop model and how there are some problematic aspects to that model that um, as somebody who has a lot of privilege, I have not really um, always thought about. But that's being questioned you know um being a writer and sharing your work is such a vulnerable thing and you think especially for younger writers where it's like the first time they're doing this thing i think we have so many traumatized and scarred writers and so many people who say like oh i hate writing or "I hate poetry or something like that because of these classroom experiences where they were vulnerable and they shared um or Perhaps they witnessed that happening, and they it was punished. You know, oh, here's the only correct way to write poetry, or the only way correct way to interpret poetry, or whatever. And so, um, and I think likewise in the workshop model, you have this vulnerability if you're sharing your work, and the person leading the workshop has a lot of authority in saying what is good writing, what is not good writing, um, what should you change your story to be, and you know, as I examine my experience. I've had those too and maybe I didn't really think about them. So uh, I don't have any clear answers, but I think I'm definitely thinking a lot more about, like you're saying, these. Um, there's this responsibility and there's um, a lot of complicated things to negotiate in the classroom, particularly when it's something like creative writing.
1: Thank you for that. And of course, the focus of the show is tonight, neurodiverse teaching and neurodiverse professionals in the teaching profession. So Meg, you came to an adult diagnosis of autism, of course. Um, What do you remember about your experience of being an undiagnosed autistic student at school and college?
2: So it's interesting because I was just so unaware. So now I have to kind of look back and reinterpret certain things. Um, I think there were certain things that worked very well for me. being in a classical model where there was a lot of memorizing things when um, my type of autism is that I am good at memorizing things um, where there were a lot of rules, there was a lot of structure, a lot of order. Um, Those were things that I really excelled in. Um, But I think as I've gotten older, I've, and and because of that, I really um, look positively at those years in a lot of ways. And I was like, well, this school is great. And I'm not saying it's not, but I think as I've gotten older and become aware of my unique neurodivergence have also become aware of other unique neurodivergences and that a system like that while it can really benefit those who do well under it it was a very sink or swim model of like well if you're not good at memorizing things if you're not blessed in the um liberal arts um if you're not good at memorizing latin you're not going to succeed well in this system and so i think that that's a challenge because the reality is we're all Uniquely designed, and we all have unique strengths and struggles. And so, there's kids that are going to do great in that, and then there's going to be kids who really struggle. So, it's interesting because I think a lot of my coming to terms with my diagnosis is like, well, what if things had happened differently? Um, and that's something that I'm thinking a lot about um, as a writer as well, because I think I, I had it good. <laughs> I had it good in a lot of ways, um, and I just I think my heart goes out to how all the kids that it does not go well for and how such simple changes in my educational system uh, could have really been detrimental to me or my home life. Um, So, like, I think the way my brain works, I benefited from the educational systems that I was in and I worked well and I thrived under those um, in classrooms. Um, Though that said, there were situations that tended to be relatively minor, but were a lot of misunderstandings, that I believe largely stemmed from uh, my neurodivergence. Like one time in high school, I got accused of cheating because my handwriting fluctuated. Um, and so little things like that, that um, people making assumptions because something does not look exactly the way they expect, um, or me having sensory issues with certain things and being told I was having a bad attitude about it or whatever. Um, and there's a lot of things I suppressed. and. Um, so i guess i thrived under the system but also i masked a lot um and i suppressed a lot and to this point where it's a little hard to discern what i suppressed and what is me so there is kind of that consequence as well um what would have been lo- what would have looked like if i hadn't had to um constantly survive difficult sensory environments um my school was very small very crowded or not crowded but very small rooms um and sitting in the same room all day, we didn't really get up. You we were discouraged from getting up. Um, so there's a lot of me just putting up with sensory things. So I've had to kind of unlearn more things about coping with my autism like that of, you know, I don't have to always just put up with sensory environments till I explode. Uh, maybe I can communicate, maybe I have some autonomy that I can make things better.
1: So, was writing part of that sense of autonomy then, that sense of freedom from perhaps some of those constraints?
2: Yes. Um, I think when I was younger, that was largely manifest through art that I it was like, I don't understand how to say things in words. Um, I was very not verbal or having trouble. I shouldn't say not verbal, but um, I had latent verbal development, which is a sign of autism. Um, And so verbal processing and um, verbal communication has always often been a struggle for me. So yes, art. Um, and then as I got older, writing, because I think college was the first time I started having to really come to a head with my autism, that I was starting to be in environments that were not as sensory friendly for me, that um, it made me acknowledge there are people that work differently than me, um, because my home was very sensory safe, very autism safe. Um, then you go to college in a dorm room where people are different than you. Um, I went on lots of um, summer mission trips, staying for a whole summer in other places um, with people that are different than me, um, teams that are different than me. I think those, um, I didn't know how to process those at first. I went, I'm just so overwhelmed. Why are people doing these things that make no sense to me? And so I would often run away and I'd write and I'd just write out my thoughts. And yes, so that was definitely autonomy and freedom and processing, just trying to figure out what is going on And then that helped me regain some power of going, okay, this is what's happening here and trying to figure out how to find solutions.
1: So does your writing now as an adult then, make look back on some of those times and try to re narrativize them? Is that partly one of the purposes of your writing?
2: Yes, I think there's, especially, I write middle grade largely now. I've, for a while, wrote predominantly for the adult market and young adult. And now I've been really enjoying middle grade and I think it's in part for that reason you said Um, I think there's a sense of trying to process lots of things that maybe I pushed back I was like even uh, reading through my childhood diaries I was very inarticulate and there was a lot of I'm feeling a bad thing and I I I, I think I write a dramatic journal entry and the next day it was like dear diary I wrote wrong yesterday as if there was this sense of like you're not allowed to process these kind of negative emotions so I think there was a lot that just kind of like pushed back and so now i'm taking this time to go back and process but also to move forward um like my most recent book was a lot of me going through the same thing as my character she's discovering her autism and how to advocate in her classroom and that was me discovering my autism diagnosis so it's interesting because it was look simultaneously looking back in certain ways and thinking okay what was you know what was my educational environment like as a child and what sort of things were um, uh, struggles with my autism or could have been struggles if they had escalated. Um, But then there was, so there was that looking back, but there was also this looking forward of, you know, here, this is what I'm going through right now. And, you know, um, what do I need? What do I need to learn? (laughs) What what will help me? What tools do I have? Um, And walking alongside my character, kind of figuring those out with her.
1: And are there, thinly veiled versions of real people in these
2: books. <laughs> yes. Um well I, I say that in an oversimplistic way because I, I like to stress for my books it's not like I'm writing about somebody. I'm more I think as writers, we're writing about how we felt about something. So it's it's not that real person. Um and it's often conglomerations of different experiences with different people but that maybe had a similar feeling. So um, in that book, especially there's, you know, glimmers of educators that um, I found very difficult to work with, but also glimmers of educators who really empowered me. I had a teacher in eighth grade who said I was a good writer and who was listening to what I was writing. And that was a huge catalyst for me becoming a writer. And I think every writer you talk to, they had that one teacher who read the writing that said they were good, that believed in them. Um, and then, like I said, there's also, you know, the experiences I struggled with, like the teachers that really, um kind of crossed my sensory boundaries and my personal boundaries um, and kind of teased me in ways that um, I didn't like but I didn't have the language to um, confront or like I said teachers that you know accused me of things like cheating and didn't really give me a chance to explain myself or anything like that.
1: Now there were also teachers too that helped you develop as a writer and of you've talked to me before about the role of literary magazines at school. Would you mm. like to say a little bit about that and how it shaped your development as a writer?
2: Yeah, so uh, my education with literary magazines was twofold. In my public high school, we had a literary journal. And so I participated with that team of helping design the journal, um, publish it, as well as contributing to it. Which was a really special thing because that was probably the first time I saw my words in print and my name in print and that's just such a cool feeling as a writer you go wow this is real and people are seeing this Um, but the other fold of it was um, my own education because um, around that time as well I was um, interested in sending my work out and heard about literary magazines so I was sending on my own and learning about that, and my mom was an incredible figure of encouragement with that. That um, she would fund my literary magazine fees. I'd send to contests and things like that, and I I wouldn't send everywhere, of course. You, you know, I'd request money and I'd make an argument to her of you know why this thing, um, why this is important, and she you know funded some of them. And she said that that was part of my education, um, sending my work out, and um, often they came with sample issues of the journal so then I could read those and learn from that. And she said, you know, that's part of your education. And she was absolutely right.
1: And were you sending out stuff before the internet?
2: No, I was uh it was in the internet, but it was in that kind of weird tweenhood of the internet where uh it wasn't quite as ubiquitous as now. So I still did a lot of the self-addressed sealed envelopes and I, still did like some literary agents requested I print out the full thing and mail it. Uh, so there was kind of that weird hybrid twilight time.
1: Yeah, I can remember that bind very well having to make sure <laughs> you would weighed the envelope properly. So it didn't get returned. Yes. <laughs> and print magazines aren't such a big thing. I don't think in English schools. Um, is there a, more of a culture of it in American high schools?
2: so uh there's still the high school run literary magazines uh, to some degree a culture of that there's awards by um, programs like awp for the top high school literary journal where it's really predominant of an ecosystem is in the college um, and graduate level Um, many of the staple literary magazines print or electronic are housed in colleges and the staff is often the graduate program at that school. So that's um, really where you see the ecosystem. And so when I'm teaching college courses, especially um, like at the writer's house, um, they have a course specifically about publication and teaching kids how to send the lit mags and things like that. So yeah, it's more in the collegiate level.
1: Our school has a literary magazine too that occasionally runs from time to time. Always seems to be, quite a big effort to get it set up each new year as you get a new influx of students. Um, Are your students writing in literary magazines at the moment?
2: So um, I am not teaching an active course this semester with um, the college. I'm tutoring this semester, so I haven't been actively working with the students on that sort of thing. But I do often teach that. um, I do integrate that with most of my college courses. So even when it's you know creative writing 200 or whatever, the intro creative writing program, um, at very least, I have an extra credit option of if you send proof that you sent out your work to a magazine, I'll give you some extra credit points. Um, And then in the later courses, I'll often integrate it a little bit more deeply where maybe we'll talk about it for a day. or something like that, because I was excited about that at that age. And I know there's students thinking about that. And I think that that's a practical skill. If you want to do this thing, you should know how to send your work to magazines. And it can get some of the students excited that might have not otherwise been thinking about the implication. Just often what I combat with my students is they've been so trained of whatever the right answer is for their instructor. So a lot of them come into these classes thinking like, well, what does the instructor want me to write? So that gives, again, autonomy and freedom, right, when it's thinking, well, what do I want to write and what could be sent out and published with my name on it, you know, not just for the audience of my teacher, but outside into the uh, larger audience in the world. So I think that can excite and empower students.
1: Yeah, bigger sense of risk as well, though, isn't it? That sense that a rejection note will come back with thanks, but no thanks on it.
2: That's true. Um, And I do acknowledge that for my students, especially I teach a literary magazine specific course, and that's something I stress a lot, but I guess I never see that as a risk or a vulnerability. I've always thought of that as just something all the more to encourage you to persist. So for every rejection letter, send out 10 new submissions or whatever. Whatever you need to do, um, put your rejection letters on a pinata and whack it with your friends, make a bingo board of your rejections, like do something constructive and creative and trying to model that to the students of how you can let that not stop you because yeah if you find it too daunting you won't send your work out and then it it will probably never be published right so you have to figure out a way to overcome that fear of rejection and instead find a way to find empowerment in that situation of what you can control about it
1: brilliant well thank you very much Meg for such a clear introduction to your pathway uh, towards becoming an educator and for the decisions along the way that seem to have shaped your journey alongside your work as a writer. In the next section of the show, we'll consider how some of the lessons of how these classroom memories have shaped your teaching practice have also informed your working with a range of different age groups. And we'll be right back after this.
3: Visit johncattbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
4: Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world.
5: Ofsted finds itself in the news again, as inspections, paused for a two-week period to allow inspectors to undertake mental health awareness training, begin again on the 22nd of January. ITV News shared the results of a survey of almost 2,000 school leaders, which showed that 97% support the removal of single word judgements. The survey, carried out by NAHT Union, followed the outcome of the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry the union has urged Ofsted to implement a number of changes, including a mechanism for school leaders to halt an inspection where an inspector's conduct falls below standards, extending the notice period schools receive for inspection and asking them to revert to a process, however temporarily, of ungraded inspections similar to those conducted during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the BBC reports that Ofsted has apologised fully for the first time For the role it played in Ruth Perry's death. The apology came at the same time as Ofsted responded to the coroner's prevention of future deaths notice. In the PFD response new Ofsted chief Sir Martin Oliver said such tragedies should never happen again and that he apologised sincerely for the part inspection played in her death. Since the death of Mrs Perry Schools judged as inadequate on safeguarding alone are now re-inspected within three months. Ofsted also changed its confidentiality rules to allow heads to speak to colleagues, family, friends and health professionals about outcomes of inspections before the report is actually published. The Department for Education has committed to working with Ofsted to review things during a consultation in the spring, which it is calling the Big Listen education unions praised Ofsted's positive steps, but said they were only the beginning. The weather has been front and centre of the news this week, with schools across parts of Wales and Scotland being forced to close due to snow. Icy conditions and weather warnings made for tricky travel and forced school closures in areas badly affected. For those concerned that the post-pandemic impact of remote learning would mean the end of snow days, Pictures on social media and local news prove that this was not always the case. But anyone worried that the icy blasts will last can be assured that the weather is set to return to normal over the next few days. Authors, including Sir Michael Morpogo and Mallory Blackman, have written an open letter urging the government to invest in early years reading. According to a Book Trust survey, only half of children between one and two, from low-income families, are read to daily, with some families struggling to access books and being in need of support. The letter from authors is addressed to both Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Sakir Starmer and says it is not right that children from poorer backgrounds are deprived of a life rich in reading. Sir Michael Mopogo is President of the Charity Book Trust and helped launch their new campaign Get Reading to support disadvantaged children in family reading. He spoke on BBC Radio 4's Today programme saying that the younger that children are introduced to the power of stories, the better chance there is of putting them on an extraordinary pathway of knowledge, understanding and empathy. He also said that books need to be free at the point of delivery, like the health service. A DFE spokesperson said, we are committed to raising literacy for children, but Sir Michael said that these efforts are clearly not enough. Finally, The Guardian features an article which looks at research in America that appears to show that children learn better on paper than on screens. The research follows headlines across the pond which focused on the nationwide collapse in reading scores among American youths, citing a four-point drop in the comprehension skills of 13-year-olds, falling below skill levels of 1971 for the worst-performing students. Politicians appear to be assigning blame to the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns, with remote learning being labelled as bad for students by the Biden administration. Others blame teachers who they say lobbied for lockdowns. However, the article itself focuses on a new study by neuroscientists at Columbia University's Teachers College, which appears to show there is a clear advantage to reading a text on paper rather than on a screen because it leads to what they describe as deeper reading. A sample of 59 children aged 10 to 12 were asked to complete a series of tasks, which led researchers to conclude that we should not yet throw away printed books and shouldn't rely on the digital revolution just yet. Further details can be read on The Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox.
1: Welcome back to our show on neurodiverse practitioners in the classroom with poet, novelist, and creative writing teacher, uh, Meg Eden Kuyat. In the opening section of the show, Meg spoke about some of her experiences as an undiagnosed neurodiverse student in the American education system and the pathway she took into teaching. Now, of course, Meg is responsible for teaching students, many of whom will now have diagnoses for neurodivergence, to develop their writing skills. So, Meg, could you tell us a little bit about the different teaching context within which you have worked since university before we move on to the role that adult diagnosis played for you?
2: Sure. So I teach in a few contexts. Um, I teach predominantly adult learners at creative writing centers, um, online, as well as in person. I teach at Ann Community College, like you said, so I teach a lot of um, 100, 200 level creative writing courses there. I've taught graduate level, as you mentioned, Southern New Hampshire, um, and I've taught at other universities online and in person. I've also taught for children. Um, I do school visits now, so that's often the context in which I'm thinking about teaching in a very brief context, but I've also taught creative writing workshops uh, for a writing summer camp called Writopia uh, for kids ages six and up.
1: And what do you enjoy about the difference between particularly teaching in summer camps and teaching your adult learners at the community college?
2: Um, Well, working with writers of all ages is fun. They're fun in different ways. especially younger kids they have that uncensored unbridled creative energy that you just want them to keep that that joy and that confidence in uh the act that you know i'm always just trying to figure out how to channel that um in any context but especially summer camps can be fun because you've got this you've got time to get to know them a little bit but you've also got this scope um i really love having a full semester though and that's what i get with my community college students. Um, And there's a different joy in that of seeing some of them, you know, rediscover the joy of writing or discover it for the first time. A lot of my students, they come in with trepidation on this idea of poetry. You know, we go to the poetry unit and they go, oh, no, you can just see it on their faces. But at the end, I always ask them for reflections. um, All of my courses, whenever possible, I ask for some sort of reflection because I want them to think about what did we learn? What was meaningful to me that I'm going to take away from this course? Um, or maybe things that you didn't like about the course. I like knowing that too. Um, But what I consistently see is that the students say, I didn't think I'd like poetry, but I actually ended up really enjoying it. And that's my greatest joy. My joy is to convert people to poetry, (laughs) to see it can be for them, Um, but it's not this really limited definition that we've often had of poetry equals Shakespeare or poetry equals some sort of What's the word? Some sort of um, kind of abstract metaphor that needs deep interpretation. Uh, All those things can be poetry or it needs to rhyme or it needs to use elevated diction. Those are all things poetry can be, but poetry is so much more expansive and rich than that. And so I love being able to see students realise like, oh, this poetry thing can be fun. This poetry thing can be interesting. This poetry thing can resonate with me on a personal level.
1: Are there any particular writers that you're younger students are drawn to?
2: Um, I enjoy connecting them with slam poets when possible, like Liz Acevedo, Patricia Smith, um, Pages Matam. Um, I I like being able to play some of that uh, Fatima Ashgar, I think that one that allows for a multimedia context so we're not just purely reading something on the page we're getting to hear it we're getting to see it engaging multiple senses is always going to be helpful and it also allows for multiple ways to talk about literary interpretation um, and critical analysis, because when we're reading on the page we're reading a text and interpreting it in one sense and in a critical sense. But when there's this performance aspect, we're also interpreting body language, we're interpreting tone, we're having to use analysis for multiple aspects, which I think as an educator is interesting to bring into the conversation. But um, a lot of, there's actually, it's actually quite polarizing students either get really into that or they go, they're so angry. (laughs) So that's interesting too, to see how they respond. Um, but I like those as well because they employ colloquial language. So people go, oh, wait, they're speaking like I do. <laughs> they're not using some antiquated language that I never use in my life. Oh, that's that. Even if they don't always like it, often, um, for example, I do a personification prompt with a lot of my students and I play um, readings of slam poets or just poets in general reading personification poems and right away they go ah, I get what you're trying to get us to do so it's very effective and um, gets them engaged even if they don't necessarily love it
1: I think there's also that permission to use the everyday isn't there that you see in you know the writing of the Black Mountain poets for instance this sense of ordinary language can be made extraordinary in the right hands
2: yes I love that
1: And if we think about some of the students you teach, Meg, that have particular um, neurodiverse needs, how has your autism diagnosis shaped the way you adapt things for those students?
2: I think the biggest way it's shaped me is that it's given me empathy. Um, I think I'm a person that tends to jump to conclusions and make assumptions. And growing up, I heard a certain narrative about Kids that were acting out and misbehaving, um, and I suppose that exists. But my instinct now is when I see acting out, is well, why is the kid acting out? What's going on? Is there a sensory need that's not being met? Is there some disability accommodation needed here? What's going on? And so it's prompted me to ask questions of my students to pull them aside. Um, you know, if a kid has AirPods in, is this a is this a disability thing? Is this an accommodation thing that you need? Um, is this uh if you're having if you're um acting out you know is there some sort of tool we can get you to help would it help to step out in the hall for a couple minutes um so i think it's it's helped me to be kinder um and that's often been effective you know this it, it, when it wasn't that the student had a disability thing they were just you know wearing their AirPods. um they seemed way more receptive with i guess it opening with is this a disability a thing is this helping you engage with the classroom oh you say no um could you put them away for now um they were i think it instead of making assumptions and going on the offense, asking questions again, this is the theme today, I guess is autonomy. Um, it's, it's giving a little bit more power back to the students um, to make choices of how they answer things and choices of how they engage and giving them a choice to engage. Um, I was so grieved the other day, I did a school visit and I was reading this poem about a character who, um, she says like, I'm, it was in the evil place, Walmart. And um, the student asked me why that uh, that was the evil place for my character. And I talked about how the sensory issues were so bad. And I said, well, what's your evil place, whatever? And she said, school. And she, and she just felt so imprisoned by school. And that just grieved to me because I think that's a reality for a lot of students. I think that's very relatable, but... Um, That's not what school is supposed to be school is supposed to i mean i guess everyone has different opinions of what school should be my hope would be that school is a place that can empower students that can give them the skills and tools they need for life and it can be a joy and help them build relationships with people that can encourage and cheer them on so um yeah
1: that's an interesting point actually this idea about tools and skills i mean quite a lot of uh learning support needs in the 21st century are essentially uh, dealt with by giving the students a new piece of technology. And as we heard in the news clip not so long ago, there seems to be a kind of questioning about the value of that overall, whether students are being benefited by all the technological tools that are being given to them to supposedly solve a learning need. Have you seen that happening in the schools that you've been part of?
2: I have very messy feelings about that because while that was going on simultaneously, I was like, yes, of course, Um, this is so true. But also uh, also tech can be so critical, especially for disabled students. So I was thinking about remote learning that can be that can make learning possible for disabled folks, for folks that have accessibility needs. But it also can be a huge detriment for other types of learners so like all these things it's kind of like a yes and no mixed bag, I mean I've had students that had. um, A great need for technology, I had a student I, I can't remember her specific disability needs, but I remember she needed technology to be able to engage with the class effectively and she was a go-getter and she used that technology effectively and she it was clear she was working twice as hard as the other students um, but she was able to thrive and succeed with those tools of technology so i think the question really is i think we tend to try to think in um broad strokes of like everyone should get this thing like everyone should get smart boards or no one should get smart boards for their because they're um limiting and inhibiting education i think it's a way more complicated question of what tools are helping each person succeed and which tools are getting in the way of their success and it's i think there's not a one uh size fits all answer i think that it's and it, it can be for different seasons too. There can be certain tools that are really helpful for a certain season for a certain student, and maybe they cultivate the skills to work without that. Um, and then for other students, that, that, that thing is really getting in the way of their success. So I have complicated feelings.
1: Yeah, it sounds like your experience is not too uncommon actually from mm. the other colleagues I've spoken to about the issue before. And how do you make Adaptations to your teaching strategy to specifically take into account the needs of neurodiverse students?
2: So I think it's predominantly having an attitude of flexibility and empathy and asking questions before making assumptions. Um, but with that flexibility, it means I try to have things multimodality. I try to have multiple ways for students to engage, multiple ways for students to communicate their needs. I obviously like probably every educator um, in the collegiate environment at least is encouraging students like, if you have a DSS accommodation, if you have you know needs for tools, you need to communicate that to me because I can't help if I don't know. But the problem with college especially is this is such a coming of age time. A lot of kids don't know. I've had a lot of students really struggle in the classroom and it became clear over time like, oh, this student probably has something going on where they need tools that they don't have. and you know i can try to encourage them of, like consider going to this place and seeing if that is helpful um but you can't force that journey so that can be a really challenging thing so um that doesn't mean i can just magically make everyone pass of course i don't well, i want them to um achieve the skills needed to demonstrate those skills but i do try to create flexibility with um how people can participate in class and online through verbal communication through thumbs up through small groups Um, i tend to have some sort of very loose participation um, kind of percentage of their grade um, i guess participation points is a controversial thing um, in classrooms. And I, I think it's important if you're not participating in the class, are you actually in the class? Um, but I make that very loose. That doesn't mean you have to be standing in the classroom every single day, or you have to say something verbally every day. I am looking very loosely for participation. I've, you know, a range of what that criteria can look like. Um, I have floating attendance days for live classrooms. And of course, again, this varies depending on the classroom, but I do, uh, it was modeled to me in one of my early classes that everyone gets X number of free floating days. You don't have to have a doctor's note. You don't have to explain to me. You just have a couple days, um, that you can use. And then beyond that, it's going to start docking your grade. Um, and that there's like alternative makeup methods. I always try to employ individual conferences in one way or another with my students, whether that's that we can meet one-on-one in person, whether we can, you know, do a one-on-one chat in, you know um, google or on zoom um, or even if it's just there's too many kids in the class and we just take a few minutes to do a written reflection those ways i'm able to get a temperature check with my students and again i tend to make assumptions that's my nature and so i've had students i thought oh they're you know just being really rude they're being unengaged and then i looked through their written reflection and they said i have no idea what's going on in this class And it became clear, Okay, the student needs tools, the student needs help. Um, And I wouldn't have known that otherwise. And I would have assumed that they were just being awful. And so that was very humbling of going, okay, the students that may act out, they may act out because they're frustrated that they can't get this material. They may feel powerless that they don't have tools that are able to help them. And, you know, especially at Anne Community College, we have a lot of offices and a lot of resources. So if I know that I can point you in the right direction of somebody that can help. So those are a how few the, things.
1: Sorry, how did the community college manage the engagement challenge during the COVID lockdowns?
2: So um, that's a good question, and you may get different answers depending on who you talk to. I was already teaching online for several years before COVID, so this was not a challenge for me. I just did everything of what I usually did. Um, it, you know, if I had maybe a little bit more flexibility. Um, with the, I think with the Zoom meetings, I remember just everyone was so struggling. So I think I was a little bit more generous with literal attendance in the classroom. But like I said, I, I tend to try to have some flexibility with that anyway. Are there other ways that they can engage? Can we, you know, do an email correspondence to be checking in and that they can demonstrate knowledge of the, like, the information? Can they contribute to their small group's wiki page? Um, and that maybe it's not during those hours, but they do it at another time. Um, I'm just looking very broadly for participation. And I've always kind of, to some degree did that and the pandemic maybe just made me a little bit more generous understanding um, the difficult circumstances my students are going through.
1: And if we think about your as students and the ways you're working with students, how has your sense of yourself as an autistic practitioner shaped the way you organise the practical nuts and bolts of your classrooms, whether it's in the online environment or being back in the physical space? Because I know certainly most of my colleagues found it quite difficult to suddenly shift from one way of working to a completely new way of working. Was that a similar experience for you or have you acquired a natural flexibility that makes that tolerable?
2: Yeah, I feel like I don't have a good answer for you because um, I think I started teaching online in 2016 or 2017. So um, and that was relatively early on in my teaching career. So I think I had that kind of shocker much early on of, okay, how on earth do I translate the same thing, especially when I was getting summer units? I've heard so many people complain a bit in my department of like, oh, the summer courses are the worst. You only have six to eight weeks to teach a semester's worth of material. And I guess I I hit that hurdle way earlier. So I kind of figured out a way to adapt it. Um, So I don't really have a great answer. I think the reality is that there are two different ways of teaching. You have to teach very differently online versus in person. You you keep obviously the critical material you're teaching, but um, the way in which you're thinking about, I guess, as I've talked about participation, you have to think a lot more loosely. Um, You have to extend a bit more grace of what, online learning is going to look like. like. I heard so many people get so annoyed about like, oh, the students are turning their cameras off. And so I require them to turn cameras on. And I'm like, as an autistic person, being on Zoom is an ex- like Zoom screens for extended periods of time is an exhausting form of masking. It's somehow more exhausting than in person, I think, in part because you're not getting the same. You're getting a limited amount of input to make masking decisions on and social decisions on. So the anxiety is like stronger. So. You know, I don't leave my camera on unless I absolutely have to in Zoom. Why on earth would I make my students? That's ridiculous. So, you know, I did other things like that. Um, I especially in COVID, this is kind of tying back to your last question as well. I remember I made a lot of our in-person class sessions on Zoom, just working sessions. And I said, you know, I'm not gonna teach anything. You're just gonna hang out here and you're gonna do your paper. You're gonna and then you can come to me and we can go into a breakout room and we can talk about where you are if you got questions. Um and I think that, that that was a way to you know make it a little less strenuous that they're not having to do a new reading they're not having to pay attention to another thing on the screen they're just getting a they're getting a little bit more time to work on this thing and get some individualized feedback so you know i can employ similar techniques in the classroom and i did um but i found myself thinking a lot more flexibly as i started teaching online that okay we have to convey this information but the way in which the students engage and my rigid sense of what participation looks like. I think that's the word rigid, because when I only taught in person, I had a very rigid sense of, this is what workshop participation looks like. This is what classroom participation looks like. They need to be in the classroom. I had these very um, specific expectations. And when I started teaching online and even more so when the pandemic hit, I realized, ah, okay, students can learn and master concepts without necessarily this, as rigid of an expectation as I had, we can be a little bit more flexible Um, while still giving them all sorts of opportunities for how they engage.
1: That's interesting, the idea about engagement, too, going both ways. I mean, I certainly remember my experience of teaching online pretty much every day for two years was the considerable energy drain that came with most of the direction going (laughs) in one way. Was that something you experienced, too?
2: Um. I think that's been a constant anxiety for me as an instructor. I think it's what made me scared of teaching in the first place. Like I said, this idea that you're going in front of people when I started doing school visits, I felt this even more because adults and older folks are going to be more polite than kids. <laughs> if they're bored, you're going to know. So this idea of going into schools, I was like, oh, my goodness, these kids, They're, they're if they're bored with me, if they don't care, it's going to be really clear. So I think I've always had that concern with engagement. Um, and so I think that's why I've drawn to more conversational models of teaching, because I can talk at you. But um, also, it, it is a two-way street. And it's also a two-way street in the sense that as an educator, I get energy from my students' engagement. So I want them to be engaged. I want this to be a conversation. They're going to learn better if they're contributing, if they're asking questions, um, if they're talking. I try to very early on in class make it clear that sometimes I have no idea what's going on. Um, and you know, we it, with English 101, um, our current model is that there's a lot of academic reading, not just of a text, but then doing research on academic journals and those articles. When you're first reading academic articles, it is a shock. In fact, I'm not, that's not my main thing that I do. So that jargon is still overwhelming to me at times. So frequently I go to students like, Does anybody have any idea what this article says? It's okay if you don't. I had to read it five times. I still don't fully understand some parts. And like uh, opening that door for, you can raise your hand and say, I have no idea what's going on, I think um, helps with engagement. Um, Because I think sometimes students don't engage because they have no idea what's going on and they don't care. But when you can try to um, give them opportunities to engage, um, opportunities to ask questions. um, And you know, with Zoom, I often employ the chat And I say, anytime, throw stuff in there. Um, And that can work, that can not work, Um, encouraging them to use the the emoticons or putting a thumb up. Does this make sense? I frequently ask questions like that. Is this making any sense? Is this helping? Um, Any questions? And I think, I know for me as an autistic person, I need an invitation. Um, And perhaps this is because I was taught from a young age, it is rude to go somewhere uninvited. It is rude to impose yourself um unless you were invited. And as an autistic person, I internalize that rule very deeply. And I said, I don't want to be rude. So I often, and I'm often not aware as an autistic person internally what's going on. So I often don't know that I don't know what's going on until someone says, does that make sense? Do you have a question? And then I might go, oh, wait, I actually am having a lot of sensory issues right now. Oh, wait, I actually have no idea what's going on. So um I think I I do try to employ what I find helpful, which will not necessarily help every single student, but I hope that they're flexible methods that help a lot of students um, and may help students that would particularly struggle without those things. I rambled. I hope I answered your question.
1: Thank you. I think you did. There's a sense okay. I think I'm picking up of your commitment to developing flexibility within the classroom and flexibility in terms of how students acquire the knowledge and skills that they need over the course of their time with you. It also of course brings us to the very fraught problem of the way in which neurodiverse students handle formal assessment because often flexibility isn't generally a key principle of formal assessment. It's often standardised and very rigid how do you help students prepare for formal assessments in your context?
2: Oh, I am so sorry. I will probably not have a good answer for that because I have been spoiled in that the context in which I teach do not require formal assessment. Um, in fact, I my classes don't even require a final. So I always, and I feel I do not like formal assessments, so I would not employ them without needing it. So I always have like a final paper or something that um, they work on for a significant portion of the course. And there are lots of opportunities for revising, for peer feedback, for teacher feedback. So most courses in which I teach, that is the model. Um, And I think in the collegiate system, we don't, I have not seen as much of the um, formal assessment as necessary. There's a lot more flexibility of how you employ a final grade and stuff like that. So I'm often doing, what I find most practical of writing a thing, revising it, getting peer feedback, teacher feedback, revising again, that's the most practical thing. Um, So this is perhaps part of why I don't feel excitement by the idea of teaching full time in the scholastic system, because I know that that sense of um, the formal, you know, the multiple choices and the very um, specific way of thinking for standardized testing is a huge part of our education system. Um, Yeah, And I just, I think there's times where that sort of thing is to some degree necessary, but I think it is so heavily leaned way too heavily leaned on. And yeah, it's um, kind of arbitrarily letting well, not arbitrarily. It's a systemic problem. So there are certain students that succeed in that system. And there are students that are getting left behind in that system. Um, I'm grateful that our graduate model um, has been changing to be more flexible, because I know in the past, it used to be you had to get certain grades on the ACTs or um, all these different standardized things. Um, Many programs that I'm familiar with now are dropping that. So my hope is that we can move away from that and more towards models that demand critical thinking. But I know that that is, you know, hopeful thinking that that this is a real problem that people are facing.
1: And do many of the students who come to you have challenges that are caused by their prior experience of formal assessment, do
2: you think? Well, I think almost all students are scarred by that experience. Um, Just the way that they enter education is formed by that. It's always, Um, In fact, my flexible thinking is often one of the biggest challenges my students have to overcome because they have been so programmed to have rigid thinking that they go, okay, but like, what, what is the, how do I get an A on this? And I say, well, you follow, you follow the rubric here. You do the things I ask you to do. And they're like, okay, but like they want like, um, the step-by-step ingredients recipe instruction for how to get an A. And the reality is I want them to demonstrate that they did a thing. (laughs) I don't want them using AI. I don't want them, you know, um, just copying and pasting something from online. I want them to use critical thinking. So um, I think my teaching method is in part a rebellion against this um, very rigid standardized teaching method because I really want to push my students to have critical thinking um, and to demand them to think beyond just here's what i'm telling you to do regurgitate it to me i want you to create something new with your perspective and your thoughts and we may disagree but i want to see your thoughts i want you to form an argument that's really why i want you to learn
1: yeah it's one of the more frustrating things in my job actually when i'm working with particularly 16 year olds and they say to me sir how do i get a grade nine on my <laughs> final answer. Grade 9 is the equivalent to a grade above an A where we are, Right. The students at 16. The government changed from A star to U, which people more or less understood, down to 9 to 1, which people are still trying to get their heads around. But the answer generally in an English literature class, particularly to the student is, well, you have to convince the examiner that you've done well enough to be placed above the 91% threshold of marks okay. available, um, so essentially the way you write a grade nine essay is to cross the grade nine threshold once they read your essay. But once you can convince them that all that actually means is writing a really good essay to the best of their ability with the tools they have and the knowledge that they could acquire by sitting down and doing the learning, then that becomes a bit easier. But it can take a lot of a lot of answering with answers they don't want to hear until they get to yeah. that point
2: yes and it's um repetition i feel like i just have to say it a lot um and some of them it doesn't necessarily fully go through but i think a lot of them i see a transformative process where they go oh i have to think bigger i have to think deeper um, i have to actually think and engage with this thing um and i, I think engage is a big word i i try to um, like for English 101, you know, we tend to have one text that we really read like a book and we talk very in depth with that. And then we, re- we pick a topic to write about in tangent with that text. And then we research additional articles um, to write a large research paper on that. And I, I tell them, you know, find a point of engagement with this text. If you love it, find something really excites you about it. If you hate it, figure out something, like why you really hate it. You know, it, be cre- you have to be creative in this world sometimes to figure out that point of engagement and connection. Um, and it's okay if it's something that you really don't like, just find that thing. Um, and actually going back to one of your earlier questions about um, neurodivergent students, um, something I find effective for myself, uh, many of us have special interests and it is, um, like pulling teeth to do have us do anything that's not our special interests. So how I have adapted is trying to find connections to my special interests. So I also tried to teach my students to do that. Um, I had one student I was working with individually, a grade school boy. His parents were like, we need to get him to write and he won't do anything. Um, and he just sat in this room quietly and I was thinking, how on earth do I engage this kid? And he pulled it, oh, his phone rang. And the screen had Tony Chopper from One Piece on it. And I went, oh, you're a One Piece fan. And then that opened the door. Getting him to talk about his special interest, he started going on and on. And what he started doing, which was interesting, was he was making an argument. He had this fan theory about how two characters in the show must have been related. And I said, that is a paper. That is an argument. Um, Let's pretend that you are right. You want to make a script for a YouTube video. How would you make that argument? So we try to find that intersection point where they're excited and then we were able to, you know, write an outline for a paper and start writing a paper because we found that thing that he was excited about. So I do also always try to find, encourage my students, like, where can you find that point of connection and engagement to enter that text?
1: Can be a fine line between obsession and interest, though, can't there?
2: It can. And, you know, sometimes like I had one where a student really went really far with that and, um he got too into the interest and so it was like okay make sure you're bringing that back to the central text and so you know sometimes it's a hit or miss but i think that opens a door for engagement that those kids otherwise it can be very binary like either it's the interest or it's nothing so teaching those kids how can you connect your interest to other things in the world is giving them a life skill as well because the reality of being a nerd divergent in this world or well, really being anyone, the reality is there's lots of things that are uninteresting that we have to engage with anyway. But teaching neurodivergent kids how to engage in that despite, that's a life skill, because they will not get through life if they can't figure out how to do that. So trying to model that, you know, that can provide some success, not always, but...
1: Well, thanks Meg. It's fascinating to hear about how your practice and your conception of its purposes has developed in the light of your personal neurodiversity diagnosis. In the final section of the show, we will reflect a little more deeply, perhaps, upon how the education system might make itself more accessible and responsive to the needs of neurodiverse teachers and learners. And we'll be right back after this.
3: This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources To support great teaching and learning in schools around the world, have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit JohnCatBookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
4: Introducing Eaton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit etonx.com to find out more.
1: Well, welcome back to the final part of our show on autistic teachers, neurodiverse students, and the role the education system can play in supporting their development with Meg. We've covered ways in which an awareness of your own neurodiversity has informed your teaching practice, Meg, but I'd like us to think a bit now about what aspects of the US education system you would like to change, both to better support neurodiverse students and to encourage neurodiverse learners to take that step of entering the teaching profession, a daunting step, perhaps. So let's start with the students, Meg. What challenges do you think autistic students face that we might help them to overcome?
2: Oh, there's a lot. It's gonna really depend on the kid. Um, You know, I think that there's certain strides that are happening that are good. I feel like conversations are happening, which is huge, that weren't happening maybe 20 years ago. Um, I was just on a panel at NCTE where we were talking about how to make sensory friendly classrooms and i just was thinking oh my goodness how cool would this have been to had this as a student there were all these concrete um you know like rubber bands and things that they were using for kids to bounce um and just it, things for the lighting um so i think that for kids with sensory needs there there's more understanding generally there's more understanding with labels like autism like okay that means you're going to need some additional resources perhaps i think a challenge that i've often been hearing about are for kids like me that you know are high maskers um quote unquote high functioning which is not a good label because um we, it is high functioning it, perception from others it does not necessarily mean that we function high um is that um what's the term that we're using now it's um Low. It's almost like the
1: functioning's invisible, isn't it?
2: Yes, the exactly. The functioning's so, like, invisible. Right. And the struggles are maybe not visible to people. So it's low support needs, right? Like we think of certain kids that need have high support needs where it's like we need a bunch of people here to make sure they're not um, you know, physically violent or, you know, um shouting echolalically in the middle of the class. Um But then there's the kids that, you know, are masking and are struggling and nobody really knows. And in fact, I've heard people say um, about their kids thinking like, well, uh, he he functioned, quote unquote, is considered too high functioning. So he's not eligible for certain things. Um, So I think that that's a problem if that is something we're continuing to face that. We have a limited perception of what this looks like and a limited perception of what kind of needs a kid might have. Of going, oh, well, you make, actually, really the diagnosis problem, (laughs) the diagnosis critique uh, is one of the biggest problems, I think, because um, there's lots of kids that can't even get a diagnosis, especially females. Um, I've heard that the parents have gone over and over again to different places and they say, oh, she makes eye contact. Oh, she has friends. She can't possibly have autism. And in fact, our diagnostic criteria are really for the kids in trouble. The kids that are hitting the point of trauma is when they can get diagnosed. So um, we're not helping intervene for these kids when they can still be doing well. We're waiting until they are at the point of absolute crisis. And then we're going, OK, you can have a diagnosis. And that's making it way harder for the kid um, unnecessarily. We're making it harder for everyone that way. So um, that's and maybe for the education system to be more accommodating of. Um, maybe not being as stringent about um what a diagnosis looks like maybe it's just having a little bit more flexibility and empathy that just people have different needs and let's just try to figure out what this kid needs and helping them get that
1: yeah it's a challenge certainly the diagnosis point is a challenging one in the uk because quite a lot of the resource comes from the government Mm -hmm. and there's a kind of pressure Really, on that kind of spending because there isn't that much cash around.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think I don't fully know um, all the nuances of our system. I think um, in some ways there's more opportunities, but there's also more opportunities for misunderstandings and misknowledge of what this looks like.
1: Does funding come from the states, the individual states in your system?
2: Well, so the healthcare system as a whole messy problem in and of itself um and so you know you can get it, there's a lot of people that feel like they have to go to private care and pay out of pocket i think to be able to get um the diagnostic um tools that they need that maybe a general practitioner is not always going to be as helpful or be able to point them to what they need so um i mean our our country is largely privatized healthcare. i mean there are some more public healthcare options i suppose but that is that's a whole other can of worms of a, a huge problem in our country
1: so does that mean that parents are, are paying for any support that the student might need themselves
2: um so that's really going to depend state by state i think there's and this is really interesting when i i talk about this stuff the reactions i get to read from readers is really interesting some people go i can't believe that there'd be a school that wouldn't have accommodations for autism and then there's other people that's like our state doesn't really even acknowledge that my daughter's autism exists. So I think you would get different experiences based on states or maybe some states have um, in their schools resources that the kids can just access for free where maybe they have got physical therapists and you know um, sensory tools and um, a lot more medical resources even within the school. It, it just, it really, really varies. Um, I, I hear some schools and I go, wow, that's like utopic. That sounds amazing that they have all these things. And then there's other schools where, you know, nobody has anything. So the parents are having to go outside of school, outside of their general practitioner, perhaps even, to be able to get help for their kid. The The big thing I tend to hear, and again, I, I feel like um, this is a lot of stuff that I maybe don't know as well because as an adult getting a diagnosis, my journey is very different. But from parents, what I tend to hear is, their biggest struggle is just getting the diagnosis in the first place even. And then there's perhaps a, another separate hurdle of how do I get what my kid needs based on the diagnosis? But Even just getting someone to acknowledge that their kid needs help is like the, the first big problem.
1: And do you think that's partly down to a cultural thing in the States? Is there still a bit of a stigma around the whole concept of learning support needs?
2: This again changes on who you talk to, because again, I I talk to educators who have trouble understanding what I write and they go, well, everyone's got a diagnosis, there's no stigma, and how would these kids not get the support that they need? So I think that there are some places where maybe there is less stigma or from the perspective of adults, perhaps there may be less stigma um, or from the perspective of kids. Um, So I think that there are definitely environments where there is less cultural stigma, but I think there are other environments where there is a lot of cultural stigma. I hear often things like, don't use your autism as an excuse, even as an adult. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? Like I have a, like a literal condition where my brain is different. Like, um, that's not an excuse. That's just a reality that I have to figure out how to work with. So, um, I think sometimes the stumbling blocks can be a little bit more subtle in the ways of how people talk about, um, something like this, but also the, um, there's a cultural perception of what autism looks like in part because of the origins of the diagnosis which is um, where observations made in young white boys Um, and autism manifests very differently not uh, based on gender based on individuals like um, it's just such a wide thing and so um, I think part of the problem is just such a limited perspective that when people um, in certain parts of America perhaps at least they hear autism they think little white boy who loves trains and has no friends and uh, makes no eye contact and if anything is not that they go oh that can't be autism because i knew i had a nephew and that's he was autistic and that's what it looked like um, but you do also hear ableist language too, so people will say, "Oh, he has autism and so um it, as if it's this like cancer diagnosis or something. So I think there's also this and uh, people go like, "Oh oh, that's so awful. I'm so sorry for your loss like so there there's that aspect I think it, the answer is that there's a, there's a um, it's not one single thing. there's a lot of different um problems, some of them may be more subtle um and some may be more overt.
1: I think you've put that well, Meg. Um, If we look at the idea of getting more neurodiverse teachers into classrooms, do you think that might go some way to reducing that sense of stigma and increasing understanding within the system?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, um, that panel at NCTE was just mind blowing to me. And it was the person heading it was a Canadian teacher that was autistic. And I was just thinking, how cool would it be to have an autistic teacher like they would get it? And, you know, he's actively doing things to make the classroom safe, because that's another aspect I guess we haven't talked about is that a lot of autistic kids are kind of quiet quitters when it comes to school. They It's just too much. And we see that. Um, OK, I, I want to say lots of things that maybe are oversimplified. Um, But, you know, even like uh, hikikomori in Japan, which is more nuanced than that, that is not just autistic kids quite quitting. But um, there's perhaps, uh, it's been suggested that that is a factor of it, that many of those hiki uh, worry that are staying at home and um being shut-ins um maybe neurodivergent maybe autistic uh so that seems to be you know a factor perhaps and we see it in the states where a lot of kids are just like i'm not going to go to school or i need, i've heard people say you know i have to homeschool my kid because of this so um if the so the classroom in itself the sensory environment can be a battlefield um the people can be a battlefield the social aspect can be a battlefield so yeah if you have teachers that are neurodivergent um that's gonna that's they will be more conscientious of trying to create a safe space for the students and uh, destigmatize autism so
1: given what you've just described though the the reality of some of our school uh, buildings and classrooms across the western world and further are these places that are likely to be attractive to people with various neurodiversity um diagnoses are these places welcoming as they are or is there much more work needs to be done to make them more welcoming do you think
2: well i hear from a lot of kids of how not welcoming it is um i'm trying to remember the full story i remember there there was a kid that um one of their accommodation needs was a support animal and um the level of difficulty which i think is a complicated thing you think about bringing an animal in the classroom that's that's a um there's some complicated things with that. Um, but it was also disappointing that um, the school seemed very, very resistant to try to work with this student. And that was like the one thing keeping them being able to go into the physical space. So it seems like a shame if that's like the one thing that this person needs to engage, um, we should probably be trying to figure out a way to make that work. Um, so yeah, to, to a lot of kids, these spaces are very hostile. Um, the more I've become aware of it, the more and maybe not necessarily hostile it's become to me sometimes, um, but exhausting. So things like online learning have been uh, absolute freedom for me because I think I wouldn't be able to teach to the same frequency and extent that I can. Um, if I was having to go into these spaces, I would be burning out way more frequently um, and it just be wiped because, yeah, this is that's a whole other battle. Um, and I think it's a whole other question of how we make those more accessible. But I think it's important to acknowledge that that is a huge challenge for a lot of these people and one of the reasons they will just not engage.
1: And do you have many neurodiverse colleagues, Meg, in your circle?
2: Uh, I, I don't know if any, um, that have explicitly communicated that they are neurodivergent, um, in my immediate circles. Um, I think, you know, I've got friends obviously that are that also happen to be um, in the educational field. Um, But, you know, I think as a writer, I've had a lot more conversations with colleagues of like, oh, you know, I'm neurodivergent too. Um, With my colleagues as educators, I can't think of as many where it's like, oh, I'm neurodivergent too. So that is interesting.
1: okay so i just wonder if there's anything more that could be done system wise to make these spaces or this profession more attractive to people because you are often dictated to by a number of systems i wonder how well that would fit if we go back to your own experience in the classroom um, with the desire for more autonomy as an adult
2: well i mean i think the questions of what what would we like to change about the education system? What needs to be fixed? I mean, I I could speak for in the US is is a huge problem. This system is, I think we're at a reckoning of realizing that we've got a lot of broken systems in the US and the education system is one that's particularly crumbling at the moment. Um, And I think one of the things that um, troubles me the most is that um, culturally we are not respecting educators. There are so many teachers quitting at record rates right now um, because they don't feel safe at work. Uh, It's not just students. um, It's that the systems are not supporting them, that um, they will perhaps get assaulted by a student and the the system will not take care of them. (laughs) They will, um, yeah, I I just hear story after story of what um, the battlefield that classrooms are in multiple levels. and I think it is not a simple fix. It's not like one thing that, wow, we this would fix our education system. But the very first thing we need to do is figure out how to treat educators with respect um, and give them motivation to be in the classroom. Because right now there's no motivation to be an educator except purely um, an altruistic love of students and um, almost like a mad desire to um, love on them and teach them. <laughs> there's not, um, our our system is not motivating people anybody to be educators, let alone neurodivergent people. Uh, so I think we got to fix that part first before we can um, remotely make it inviting for um, neurodivergent folks. And I think another critical problem again that doesn't have a simple solution, but is that oh, the overcrowded ding of, of classrooms and the ten thousand different roles an educator, at least in the grammar levels, the uh, um, scholastic levels, is expected to do. Um that you really you're kind of having to manage behavior you're having to manage thirty forty radically different kids you're having to um, you know defend them from the possibility of school shooters like it's just ridiculous the number of things that educators expected to do um and so how are you supposed to build meaningful relationships with students let alone like teach them much of anything when you're having to wear twenty hats so um yeah there's there's a lot of Structural problems and systemic problems that I think kind of need to be dealt with at the root first,
1: um yeah okay, Meg. well, it's certainly pleasing to hear that peace is breaking out in your classroom <laughs> <laughs> from what you've told me this this evening. um We've just about reached the end of today's show, and thank you so much for sharing your journey from the classroom to the university and back to the classroom with us. Thank you for being so generous in discussing your own experiences with autism, both as a learner and as an instructor. And thank you too for your ideas about how the education um, system might be developed and for the encouraging words of advice you've given to our audience tonight. It's really enjoyable hearing about your classroom practice and how it's adapted as you've moved from teaching at summer camps, workshops and different community colleges and your encouragement will no doubt prove inspirational for those colleagues who are embarking on a similar professional journey. I wish you every success with your writing and your teaching work in this new year, and hope you might talk to us again as your journey continues.
2: Thank you so much for your kind words, Christopher, and thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. I'll continue to be chewing them on them uh, for the days to come.
1: Well thank you very much indeed Meg good speaking to you Thank you too Good night Good night
3: This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world Have you checked out their latest releases use the code JCTTR 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
4: Introducing Eaton X from Eton College. A diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more.
1: Thanks again to Meg eden Cuyat for her thoughts on autism, teaching and learning and thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows this week. We have a number of new hosts continuing to make their debuts. So look up the schedule on the website and give them a listen if you can. I'm sure they'd appreciate your support and in-show text messages. Emily Edwards' show on What Makes a Good Assembly at 9pm on Tuesday looks like a very valuable listen, while Kun Duk Koo show promises to offer a new way of thinking about home languages in the EFL classroom. And you can catch that at 11am tomorrow. As always, you can listen to anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttrradio.org. And if you have something you want to say or ask others about education anywhere on planet Earth, then perhaps you should continue or consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings. Full details can be found on our website www.ttradio.org. That's all from me for this month, so thank you for listening. I wish you a successful run towards half term and we will speak again in February. Thank you.